This is Adopted with Anna and Sam. We love books and we love movies. Warning, here be spoilers. Welcome to Adapted with Anna and Sam. I'm Anna. And I'm Sam. In this podcast, we talk about a book, we talk about a movie or TV show based on that book, we play some fun games, and we encourage you to read and watch along with us. Today, we will be talking about Misery by Stephen King. While this isn't the worst Stephen King movie adaptation, I'm not really sure that I could pick one, to be honest. I don't think the movie holds a candle to the book when you look at the scare factor. The movie just isn't scary once you've read the book. That is my exact same reaction. Like, this is, I think, the first episode we've done where I have a clear favorite between book and movie. Yeah, and I remember, like, I I had to watch this movie in college because I took a modern literature class, and this was one of the books and movies we read. And my professor, like, raved about the the movie and stuff, and I remember liking it. And, you know, Kathy Bates won the Academy Award, which is amazing. But when you look at the Annie Wilkes in the book versus the Annie Wilkes in the movie, they are very different characters. Yeah. I, I know which one would keep me up at night. Yes, yes, very <laughs> much so. <laughs> All right, Anna, do you want to give us your six degrees? I do. So, we're trying to get from persuasion to misery, so I'm going to start with my boy, Kieran Hines in Persuasion. Oh, dreamy. Who was also in Miss Pettigrew Lives for a Day. Oh my god, I love that with movie. With Frances McDormand. I love that movie, too. She's a treasure. That is based on a book. We should do that one. Yeah. <gasps> Season Four. We've yeah. already got like lists for seasons one, two, and three. Live that long. Uh, so yeah, Frances McDormand was in For an After Reading with George Clooney, who was in Ocean's Eleven with Julia Roberts. They were also in like three other movies together. But whatever. Julia Roberts was in Dying Young with Colleen Dewhurst, oh, and I've seen all of these movies. Starred in Anne of Green Gables, the miniseries, which also starred Richard Farnsworth, who of course is in. Misery. Very nice. And what's your six degrees? Well, I started with my girl, Fiona Shaw, who is mm-hmm. Mrs. Croft in uh, Persuasion, but she was also in Dorian Gray with Colin Firth. Oh. And Colin Firth was in Bridget Jones' Diary with James Callis. Love him. <laughs> James Callis was in Austin Land with Jennifer Coolidge. <laughs> I know, right? I mean, we've only watched that like five times in the last month, but whatever. Right. I've only watched that five times. <laughs> Jennifer Coolidge was in a series of unfortunate events with Catherine O'Hara. Oh. Catherine O'Hara was in Dick Tracy with James Caan, and James Caan was in Misery. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, I have not seen most of those movies. I feel like uh, my life has, has been um, less than yours. I've never seen um, Dick Tracy. Oh, it's actually quite good. I, that is not what I've heard. <laughs> I've heard the opposite. Um, and I actually forget the other ones you said, but they're all books I've... Movies, yeah. sorry. Movies nice. I've never seen. So. Actually, I think um, there's another pod- podcast out there, Crossover Appeal. I believe they covered Dick Tracy in one of their crossovers. Oh. I see. So I think that's why I it was fresh in my head. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was Shout Waltz. out for Crossover Appeal. Right? What? Um, yeah. But no, you definitely check that podcast out if you haven't already. They are delightful. They are delightful. And they're much better at this than we are. <laughs> <laughs> that is a true story. <laughs> um, so, Sam, would you like to give us your book of 
why I don't mind if I do. So Misery is a psychological horror novel written by Stephen King and was originally published in 1987 and was nominated for the World Fantasy Award for Best Novel. Paul Sheldon is a world-famous author of a series of novels set in the Victorian era starring the character of Misery Chastain, who he hates with a passion. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. He has actually just finished a new novel, though, entitled Fast Cars, which is set in modern-day New York and is in no way connected to the world of Misery Chastain. As and I would said. definitely not appeal to the same audience in any no, way, shape, or form. No, 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 no. So it's a, it's a risk. He's taking a risk. But being an author who's done relatively well for himself, he's feeling really good about how this novel's going to do mm-hmm. in, in the world. He's not so sure about the critics, but he thinks it's going to be a bestseller anyway. He's convinced of his own genius. He really is. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, you know, I know you'll cover this in the movies, but James Hong clearly portrays that very well. <laughs> <laughs> um, after a celebration with lots of champagne, which is Dom Perignon, of course, Paul makes the extremely smart decision to drive from his hotel in Colorado out to the West, rather it's- than taking a plane to New York. It's the 80s, and they hadn't invented DWIs yet. Everyone, no, everyone yeah, got drunk it's so then. true. And like when you have a Camaro, why wouldn't you? Oh yeah, those are built to be. I mean, oh, they're yeah, designed they, to be driven while intoxicated. Exactly. And no like one in drives Colorado, a Camaro sober. Yeah, yeah, and in Colorado, you never have to worry about weather. <laughs> never. <laughs> I'm sensing sarcasm. <laughs> they don't have weather. In they don't have weather. I mean, everything I hear is like, oh, it's so gorgeous. I mean, it is truly gorgeous, but did you have weather? <laughs> So naturally, he drives into a snowstorm and crashes his car, suffering two... <laughs> naturally. <laughs> as one does. So naturally. So naturally. He was in a life-altering car crash. Yeah, you know, like one does. <laughs> when one's in Colorado. <laughs> he suffers two shattered legs and numerous other injuries. Luckily, or maybe not so luckily, Paul is rescued by Annie Wilkes, his number one fan. Like, and I think the, the start of this novel is actually truly great because it's just, like, the oh, him sounds that Paul hears in his coma. Yeah. And the, so, I don't want to talk about the movie yet, but the book, I mean, the book starts with him, like, coming out of the fog and hearing yes. her voice. And yes. that's such a wonderful way to grab yes. the audience. But yes. the movie does not. Exactly. And, like, one of the great things about Stephen King is he he chooses words so well. Oh, yeah. He, like, is such a wordsmith, and it's, like, one of the joys of reading a Stephen King novel is just kind of going along with him. He he has gotten me to read some truly horrific, terrible things yes. that have given me nightmares. Yes. Because his words yes. are so well chosen. Exactly. And he draws you he in. He does draw you in. these terrible, horrible, psychologically twisted yeah. things. Like Misery. Like Misery. And then, you know, just another book you guys should check out, and the movie as well, is Dreamcatcher. Let's just say I slept with the lights on for a week. Wait, you thought the movie Dreamcatcher was good? I enjoyed it. Well, Damian Lewis was really good. Damian Lewis is good. (laughs) And he is very attractive for a ginger. But it's not the best movie. He's been been in plenty of terrible movies. That's true. (laughs) It certainly wasn't up to the book. But again, the whole point of Stephen King is it's very hard to actually make a movie that lives up to his books. Yeah, well, his books are so, they're so densely packed. There's so much there. Exactly. I think, honestly, the, sorry, I'm completely digressing. Um, But the, the one, 
the one adaptation that I think truly lives up to the book is The Stand. Mm. And it's a miniseries. So it's given the opportunity to be full so and tell a story. I would agree that The Stand is probably one of the best adaptations of Stephen King out there. And I think one of the reasons why the adaptation is so successful is because the book is actually not his best book. That's true. It's like a decent book and a really good adaptation of it, whereas his strongest books, you just you can't, you can't adapt exactly. them well. Yeah. There's so much that goes on inside the heads of his characters yep. that you just can't capture all that exactly. nuance. I mean, no one has successfully done it yet. It's true. Um, and I think the reason why Stand By Me is so good is because, one, it's based on a short story, and, excuse me, and it's it's... The characters are young, and so it's like the they're easier to kind of they're not as in their heads as much because they're mm. interacting yeah. more with each other. It's and it's more about the relationship between the boys than it is. So the way it's written, there's there's less of the psychological. Yeah, exploration. I mean it's still psychological exploration because I mean the short story is called the body, um, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyway, sorry. Let me get back to back my to book report. <laughs> um, so he's crashed his car and he's rescued by Annie Wilkes. However, when he wakes up, Paul learns three very important things. One, Annie Wilkes has a lot of Navril. Navril, right? Yes, Navril. Navril or Novril? I think it's Navril. And eh, whatever. It's a powerful narcotic. Two, he's hooked on this drug. Mm. And three, Annie Wilkes is dangerously crazy. Oh, she cray cray. She cray cray. She's already slipping into fugue states, like, and it's only page four. <laughs> so we're in for a trip, guys. Horrific characterization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ugh. I just I don't envy him in any way in this scenario. So I do think that there are some parts of this book and the film as well that. It's a slippery slope into misogyny. Yeah. Oh, yes. Very but, much so. And so often, women get labeled crazy because of obsessive behavior mm-hmm. or desperate behavior that is so clearly inspired by the pressure that they're that put on them by society's expectations. Yes. You know, the kind of the crazy, lonely woman who like just wants a man, and it's like that's because her entire life she's been told she mm-hmm. has to have one. Yes. But. Annie Wilkes is legitimately just crazy. Right. Like, it's, it's, this is not like, oh, she's been gaslighted. It's right. Like, no, she is broken inside. Yes. yes. And, and that I, is, yeah, no. And I was that gonna, is not the pressure yeah. of society. Definitely not. And I was going to save this for the discussion part, but because you're raising it now, I think I can, it, it makes sense to, to say here, but um, Paul's reactions to Annie are very much driven by his own internal misogyny, I think. Mm. Um, I don't, but I also think that Stephen King does a really good job of, of portraying Annie not crazy because of what you just said like she is legitimately crazy but paul doesn't recognize that's that she's legitimately crazy until like maybe halfway maybe yeah. halfway through the book like he's just thinking she's crazy because of like she's a crazy lady she's a crazy old lady yeah. you know and like she's not even old she's just yeah. like and he tries to manipulate her and he tries exactly. to exactly like, yeah no so annie is a former nurse and she cares for paul as he convalesces constantly avoiding the topic of the outside world mm. So Paul's basically been in this house for two weeks, has no idea what's going on, and Annie's like, oh yeah, no, it, stuff's happening. Don't worry about it. Um, she gets his permission to read the manuscript of Fast Cars, which is the novel he finished, and when she finishes, she's appalled at the violence and profanity and spills his soup during their discussion about this book. Mm. 
as punishment, Annie forces Paul to drink from the bucket of dirty water and eat and soak and like suck the rag that she used to clean up the scene. Which like reading this scene, I was just completely oh, horrified. Disgusting. Oh. I was like I was like definitely twitching. I was like, oh god. Ugh. And and I think that's sign number one that this is not just like She's just kooky, not a crazy. Yeah, she's not like a like. Oh, I live alone, this, and so I'm like I have no people this skills. This person is unhinged. Exactly, and I think like this is where Paul's starting to realize, oh, maybe I should not be a misogynistic dude, and I should actually like kind of pay attention to her as a person and not just assume all of this stuff about her. I don't. I don't know if it's um quite pay attention to her as a person, but I think he takes her as a legitimate. Threat. Yes, exactly. No, that's a better way to say it. In, in a way he hadn't before. Yeah. Like, before, like, he would, like, she wasn't a threat. She was just kind of, like, an obstacle, obstacle to overcome. Yeah. And now she's just, like, a genuine, like, danger. Yes. And unpredictable. Very unpredictable. Let's talk more about that abuse, Sam. Okay. Um, she has recently picked up his new, newest novel, Misery's Child, unaware that Paul has killed off her favorite character at the end. However, when she finishes, she rages at Paul's and leaves rages at Paul and leaves him alone in the house with no food or drugs for the pain. By the time she re- by the time she returns, he's basically comatose because I think it's been like two days or something like that, and he's had no drugs or food. Upon Annie's return, she forces him to burn fast cars, which is the only copy, and demands that he write a new misery novel called Misery's Return. Paul writes the novel with Annie providing editorial feedback, even as she slips into her fugue states more often and displays many other worrying signs of psychosis. She leaves a couple times to go to her what she calls her laughing place, and she leaves Paul alone each time. Uh, After he's able to get into a wheelchair, he's actually able to find a way to sneak out of his room and kind of explore her house. And so he's able to find Annie's stash of Navro and takes a couple packets to hide. And he also finds that there's actually no way out of the house while he's in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. Um, on one such venture, he also discovers her murder book, as that I like to call it. I think he calls it murder book, too, but I don't remember. If he didn't call it a murder book, he really should have. He should have, right? I mean, it's basically what it is, because it's filled with articles of people who have died, and Paul figures out that they died at Annie's hands. The deaths include her dad, a fellow student, and many of the patients that she cared for were either too sick or too old or she just didn't like them mm-hmm. and i think she kills like a landlady and the family or something like that it's just it's a lot of people it's a there's thick a lot book <laughs> it's a thick book paul suffers at annie's hands she discovers his she has discovered his adventures into the house and to prevent him from doing so again cuts off his left foot with an axe and then cauterizes it with a blowtorch like you do that is how i handle all of my Splinter, cauterize the blood Right? Torch. Exactly. It's just, you know, I, I whenever somebody gets hurt, I'm like, do we have to amputate? And the answer is always yes. Mild burn, cauterize the blood <laughs> torch. Um, but he also loses a thumb, when she, which she cuts off with an electric knife, for daring to complain about a missing letter on his typewriter, which he's using to write her book. So I don't feel like that's quite the reaction. Oh, are you complaining that Annie Wilkes is unreasonable? Yes, yes, I am. (laughs) (laughs) If you're going to cut bits off of me, it should be for a good reason. Right? Right. Some sound logic, Sam. You should apply that next time you talk to her. I try to be logical in all I do. Okay. Yeah. Um, A state trooper stops by as Paul is close to finishing, and Annie kills him when Paul yells out. Oh, God. Oh, that scene is so horrific. Yes. Should I say it? 
go for it. Like the lawnmower. Oh my god. Oh, oh, oh. And like the head and it's, it, yeah. Oh, it's so disturbing. Oh man. She she's determined to get her way. Okay. No matter the cost. Isn't there also a does she stab someone with a wooden cross? She stabs the state trooper first. Yeah. And, oh. And then he gets up again. And that's when she goes to get the lawnmower because right, she's he just almost been lawning. makes it back to his car, and, and then she comes she gets, out the lawnmower because the cross wasn't oh. enough. Because the guy's a, he's a, he's a badass apparently, and he's a young yeah, in shape. Yep. You know what? Wooden crosses are not what really they used to be. Stormtroopers the way they kill vampires. No, that's true. Not oh, stormtroopers. Yeah, that, state whole, troopers. that whole scene is so it's so hard to read. Oh my god! I remember reading. I was just like, okay, yeah, I remember this. And I'm glad I had previously forgotten it because it's horrific. You know what's interesting? So I reread the book for this episode. I'd read it years ago. Mm-hmm. And I remembered quite a few things. And that scene I had forgotten. I exactly. think I had blocked it from it's my It's like brain. a mental block because it's just so... I mean, Stephen King does an amazing job writing it. Yes. Because you're actually living it. Yes. And it's and that's not horrible. recommended. Um, I did not get into that level of detail. Sorry. FYI. I brought that up. <laughs> I just, I needed some catharsis. I have so much emotion about that scene. I don't blame you. It's, it's very strong. <sighs> it's very strong. Moving on. Okay, moving on. Um, so Paul then finishes Misery's return, and he tricks Annie into giving him a match as part of the, ri- as part of his finishing up my novel ritual. And um, he kind of like, hey, Annie, let's celebrate together. You know, when I finish a book, I usually smoke a cigarette and get champagne. And so she's like, okay, and gives him the match, because that's what you want to do. Um, and in the meantime, Paul has actually uh, covered his manuscript in lighter fluid and managed to, to light it on fire. And so when Annie panics and tries to put it out, he hits her in the head with a typewriter. But it doesn't kill her. So they're struggling back and forth, and he manages to kind of knock her out and finally get out of the room and lock her in. But she's still alive and trying to, like, get at him. And so he manages to get out of the house or something like that, and then two state troopers arrive. Looking for their dead looking friend. Looking for their dead friend, you know, so we're like, whoo, okay, and so he yells out to them and they discover him, and um, it turns out that they confirm Annie's dead, but they find her in the barn, not in Paul's room. She had snuck out the window, gone to the barn, and she was getting a chainsaw with which to cut Paul apart. Before finally succumbing to, to the, 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 the head injury. Head injury. Multiple yes. head injuries, right? Yes, because he, he whacks her a couple <clears throat> times. Um, so, you know, Paul gets out, not unscathed. Mm-hmm. Not unscathed. Well, he's missing a foot and a thumb. Exactly. And, you know, you can get by without them, thankfully. But I feel like the psychological return yeah, also, is you know, bad. being tortured for months. Yes, exactly. Um, but, of course, Misery's Return is published to great acclaim because, of course, Paul would not burn another book. But poor Paul sees dead Annie everywhere he goes. Actually, the the closing scene of the, the closing few chapters of the book is great because it's like Paul's returned home from this you know, kind of celebratory with his editor, and he sees Annie rising from the couch, and it's really just the cleaning lady. And he kind of goes on to say, like, he sees Annie here and Annie there, and he's never going to really escape from her. No. Mm-hmm. She'll always be, she's, uh, she's his number one fan. <laughs> So that's Misery, the novel. Anna, would you like to report from the balcony on the movie? I would love to. So the 1990 film Misery was directed by Rob Reiner from a screenplay by Lane Goldman. 
this Princess is Bride. the director writing team behind The Princess Bride, and I was hoping for more similarities between the two films. I'll be honest. <laughs> there are no R-E-U-S's anywhere. I mean, that's a Missouri. huge loss on their part, honestly. I feel like Stephen King would have been like, oh, you want to add some giant rats? Go for I'm it. with that. Yeah. Please do. He's like a horror novel writer. He would. He has written many oversized, horrific animals. I feel yes. he would be behind that. Anyways. I digress. The film stars James Caan as writer Paul Sheldon, Kathy Bates as Annie Wilkes as number one Pam, Richard Farnsworth and Frances Sternhagen as Buster and Virginia, widely regarded as Colorado's version of Nick and Nora. Uh, relationship goals, FYI. That is, you're, I was going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> and Lauren Bacall as Marcia Sindel, Paul's agent. I do feel like we went from relationship goals with the craft and persuasion to relationship goals with Buster Virginia. And I just, I feel like if you're going to choose thematic um, similarities between persuasion and misery, like that is the only one is that there are ancillary characters with yes. a beautiful marriage. It's true. And like, <laughs> to be, to be fair, it's a very different marriage that, that yeah. the characters well, misery a different have from time and... But I, I think both are very good relationship goals. Yes, absolutely. The film follows much the same plot as the book, but with some interesting omissions. And by interesting, I mean two thousand one. Mm. Uh, Paul Sheldon finishes his new non-misery book before before going off the road in a winter storm in rural Colorado. He's pulled from the wreckage by his number one fan, Annie Wilkes, a former nurse who proves to be unstable and eventually violent. When she finishes Paul's latest misery book, she insists he writes a new one and brings and bring misery back to life, forcing Paul to write on an old typewriter while he is held prisoner in her house. She tortures him, re-breaking his legs when he sneaks out of his room. Confesses her love for him and is generally needy. Ladies, this is not the way to get a man. No, please. Paul is almost rescued by a plucky policeman Buster, but Annie kills him, shooting him with a shotgun from behind. Oh my god, that scene in the movie was just... Boom. It was so tense, but also not a lawnmower. No. Annie says she and Paul must both die now, but before she can do it, Paul insists he must finish the novel he's writing for her. Misery's return. Once it is finished, though, he tricks her, setting the pages on fire and then bashing Annie with the heavy antique typewriter. So Kathy Bates' Annie Wilkes is a softer, gentler version of Annie than in the book. She's crazy, but also maybe just lonely. Mm -hmm. She barely tortures Paul at all in comparison to the book. She shakes the bed, drops a heavy stack of paper on his legs, and then finally re-breaking his legs with a sledgehammer so he can't leave her. Again, I feel it's just neediness. That's it not even, so like, neediness. psychotic. No, it's, it's not just, craziness. No, it's just she really wants a man. Yeah. And, like, she does a fugue states a couple of times, like, at the beginning, but, but not, not so to much. the level that they no, have in the book. definitely not. So it, I feel like this is actually very unusual for a film to be less violent than yes. the book version. The, the film is so much less violent. Yes. Um, and to the point where when he discovers the murder book in the film and finds that as a nurse, she probably murdered a string of her patients, it almost seems out of left field. Mm -hmm. Like, I was not... There was no build-up to the fact that she... Like, oh, no, she's it. actually a murderer. Yeah. Like, in the book, when he finally finds it, it's like, well, no, of course she's a murderer. It's Clearly. like, where, were, where have you been, Paul? Right. That's just confirmation yeah. of what we already knew. Yep. So another omission that's glaring from the film is that there is nothing about Paul's addiction to the painkillers Anne has been Correct. forcing on him. This is a major theme in the book, and here it's completely absent. But the biggest omission is Misery herself. Other than a few lines read aloud and a reference to the plot twist about the bee sting, 
The book within the book is glossed over. Misery herself is excised from the film, and we never see her. Instead, we have a subplot of Paul saving his painkillers to try and drug Annie, which is foiled by bad luck when Annie accidentally spills her glass of wine. That must be the most painful in the world. <laughs> and scenes of Buster investigating Paul's disappearance. Realizing that local nutso Annie Wilkes is a big, big misery fan, as well as an accused murderer, and fending off the amorous advances of his long-suffering wife. In fact, I would argue that Buster has far more agency than Paul in his disappearance hero of the film. He is. So, considering that Reiner and Goldman had just done Princess Bride together a few years earlier, they could absolutely have handled some intercut scenes of Misery Returns. Mm-hmm. And I probably would have been great. It could have been really great. So I, I do like to fantasize about what might have been if they'd added those. And, like, honestly, to it. Um, it would have, like, tripled their budget, but it would have been It would have been great. It would have been totally worth it. And I want to read Misery, Misery's Return. Like, yes. I want to read the entire I'm book. I'm engaged by the sections that yes. we get in the book. Yeah. So it's a shame that it's out of the movie. It really is. So, um, one more thing about the film I want to talk about, which is the climactic confrontation between Annie and Paul. Mm. And it irks me for a couple of reasons. Um, after convincing Annie that he needs to finish the novel, he also convinces her to recreate his usual ritual when he finishes a novel, which as his number one fan she knows all about. She happily prepares a tray with a single cig- cigarette, match, and champagne for when the book is finally complete. She asks, did I do good? It's not yeah, her motivation. Yeah, I roll. But when she does get a second glass, Paul douses the manuscript in lighter fluid, and when she returns, he lights the match and burns the book before her eyes, so that she will never know how it really ends. Then he attacks her with a typewriter, and a deadly, deadly scuffle ensues. So that's very similar to yeah. the book. But my problems with it are that in the movie, Paul really burns Misery's return. In the book, it's it's a fake out. Yeah. He he just used like extra paper on yep. the title page, um, but he saves it because he loves the book as much, mm-hmm. if not more, than Annie does. He realizes that writing the new Misery book and getting caught up in his twists and turns saved his life and what was kept him going during the months of torture and drug addiction. In the movie, he just throws it away. Exactly. Another problem for me was um, Annie says, did I do good? When she brings him his tray and it's so pathetic and desperate and I really wanted book Annie to clobber movie Annie. No offense to Annie, uh, to Kathy Bates, because I do think she did a great mm-hmm. job performing the character what she was, was given. written in the mm-hmm. script, but it's... It's not the Annie it's from so, the book. It's so weak compared to yeah. the Annie from the book. Yep. And lastly, oh, all the other thing they did the character is that during that climactic fight scene, Annie calls Paul a cocksucker, which... She, she does actually in the book. No. Does yes. she? Yes. No. Yeah. Oh, I take it back. Really? Yeah. I remember because you and I, we, we, like, you and I had talked about it right after the movie. And yeah, then I, and I was so shocked. I had, I would finish rereading the book after we talked about that, and I was like, oh, she does it in the movie, in the book, too. Really? Okay. Yeah. I can't believe I glossed that over. Because I found that really, like, that really took me out of it during the movie. Yeah. Interesting. Well, well, I feel like in the book, it didn't take me out as much because there was so much more in that scene. Mm. So... Like, there, there's, like, all the back and forth, and Paul is, like, going after Annie, and she thinks he's destroyed the novel, and you have this entire relationship that's built up between Paul and Annie throughout the book that you mm-hmm. don't necessarily get in the movie. Yeah. So when she turns into this terrible person, you're just like, well, sure, she's a terrible person, but or she when doesn't she's, swear. When she, yeah, like, there's no, there's no buildup in the movie to being, like, she could have this side to her. That's, that's true. And in the, in the book, there's, like... Yeah, she's like dirty birdie and cockajudy and all that stuff, but there's still that edge to her mm-hmm. that she could go over at any time. 
and yeah. there's that edge isn't there in the movie. No, I would, and I would agree with that, absolutely. So, my last, um, the last bone I need to pick with the final scene, the fight scene, is that Annie just will not die, and that is in the book, except the way they do it in the movie is just, like, one too many fake-out. Yes. <laughs> like, one too many head injuries that don't do it. Yep. So, <clears throat> uh, first he hits her with the typewriter, they fight, they fight, they fight. She falls and bashes her head on the typewriter and seems dead, and that's all lovely and symbolic that she's doctor brains out on the typewriter but then she rises again and this time paul grabs the pig-shaped doorstop and bashes her forehead with that and that symbolism just seemed like a little yeah that was a little unnecessarily yeah because oh, yeah, we, we like oh she's yeah attacked. well and also we didn't mention this before but um annie loves misery so much that she's named her pig misery yes and so she like in the book she like loves this pig like mm-hmm. she basically you know kind of forgets all else and like is just about the pig she's got other animals but they're she doesn't worry about them as much she like lets a cow die like lets a couple cows die when she's off at her laughing place but like misery is like she always makes sure misery's taken care of and i think i think there's an allusion to like misery taking care of like they like she feeds her victims to misery misery, yeah um, I could be making that up because it's just so horrific. I feel like Stephen King would do it. I know um, that um, disposing of bodies of pigs is something I have seen in other films. I know, so. I know, it's I've a seen trope. It, I know, I've thing. seen it in the X Files, so maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Um, but yeah, so where was I going with that? She loves the pig. She loves the pig, and so I think the the pig stop in the movie is like not only just the symbolism about what Annie is, but just kind of like trying to tie it back to like yeah, but it, that and it doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. It's that. It felt it, like yeah, too no, many. Exactly. Too many fake out. It's to just me. it's too much. So, I think we are both in agreement that the book is vastly superior to the movie. It is so much better, and I'm. This is one of those those situations where I'm like, you can enjoy both. But you really need to consider them as different entities. You cannot say Misery the movie is based off Misery the book. It's like you get the idea from I mean, the book. I mean, but it clearly but is based on yeah, it. Yeah, and it's just, I don't know. It's it's just, it's it feels watered down compared to the it book. It does, and I mean, I don't, I think this was the first, like, horror film that Rob Reiner directed. Okay, has he done any others? I don't think so. I think it's yeah, I don't the really only think of him one. As a, so he tried it, and he's like, oh, I'm yeah, not exactly. That again. And I mean, the the one thing I remember is that William Goldman wanted to adapt Misery because of the scene of cutting off the foot. But they don't even cut off the foot, and so that's what he. But he wrote the cutting off the foot scene into the script, and then I can't remember who made the decision to change it, whether it was Rob Reiner or other producers. But then they changed it to her breaking his ankles, which, I mean, is still horrific. Yes. But, um, and then, you know, William Goldman saw it and was like, oh, yeah, okay, that works. But I'm like, I'm not sure that it does. Well, it's not even that, see, I mean, from a technical standpoint, it's probably really it's yeah. a lot easier to oh, do the bashing sure. and try and have, like, especially before um, CGI it, had yeah. caught up, like, it's much easier now to, like, fake him yeah. missing part of his leg. So, like, from a technical standpoint, it just might have been it makes so sense. much easier. And again, but, I, but they didn't earn it. They didn't earn it because there's all this other torture that she didn't do. There's yeah. all this other physical, I mean, 
he lives in fear that she's gonna like cut off more of his body and right and he never knows what she's going to do to him no and in the movie i think he's much more successful at manipulating her and flirting with her i mean it's much more like she is she is obsessed with him and loves him in this obsessive way and in the book she claims to love him but she's it's that's not it no and i i think you like i think that's a really good point like in the movie it's more fun as a romantic love that she's mm-hmm. feeling with him and like to your point the Misplaced, obsession misguided yeah, all of and that stuff, but, but like i mean and in the book she does say i love him but like all before that like Anytime the word love is mentioned, it's like the word maternal is in front of it. Mm. And so, yeah, know, it is much more of a maternal, like, yeah, the, the dark, um, right. The, the, there's like, a, um, it's not trope isn't the right word, but there's a, a whole thing about like the, the dark mother, the mother that, that takes life instead right. of giving. And yes. that's what Annie And that's is. totally what Annie is. And I think, you know, that's one of the great things about, I think that's one of the reasons why the book is so scary because, you know, it's she is this mother figure who is basically destroying her child. Yeah. And um Well and he calls her a goddess. Yeah. And he talks about her as, as the, the mother goddess. goddess. Yeah. yeah. And um, you know, I think the Stephen King breaks the book into parts, you know, the first part's Annie and then I think it's Paul and then it's misery and then the last part is goddess because that's where the confrontation is and that's what Annie has become to him because he's addicted to to the like like she gives him these drugs, so like he is her, she is his source of life and freedom yeah. from pain and stuff like that, which is how I'm a lot of people depend on, on gods and goddesses. You know, like that's what they're looking for from that kind of being. And you know, there is no hint, even when she says "I love him," there's no hint of romantic love. And her obsession with him is like she's not even obsessed with Paul in the book. It's some, it's, I mean, she's obsessed, but it's not the way they portray it in the movie it's much more complex it's so much more complex and i think i think that's one of the one of the things that we lose is the book just dumbs down humanity it's like it it oversimplifies it totally oversimplifies and and the motivations that drive a human being are basically one note mm-hmm. and that's really sad because i think there are other movies out there granted i can't think of one automatically but i know there are movies out there that have shown like motivation in a much more complex way and i would also argue that because annie is less terrifying and less in control paul doesn't learn the same lessons he doesn't no he has not changed his body experience in the same way exactly i mean in the movie he's certainly he ends in fear Mm -hmm. and he does have a moment in the restaurant in the last scene where he thinks he sees annie but it's really just ellie's yeah but it's he comes out in the book. He comes out of that whole experience com- a completely different person. Right. Just completely. I mean, physically and emotionally and mm-hmm. psychologically, like he he was broken down and rebuilt again. Yes. He he rebuilt himself, and and writing Misery's Return is part of how he rebuilt himself. Yes. And and all of that in the the movie is is missing because he doesn't have that connection to the book he's writing. He just burns it. Yeah. It doesn't mean anything to him, and so. You know, it doesn't it doesn't live in him in the same way it does in in the book. Right. And I think part of like I don't know what what I get caught up in is, um, James Kahn as Paul was both perfectly cast and the most 
terrible casting ever. <laughs> um, he plays Paul at the beginning. Yes, very well. very well. And I think that's why he's perfectly cast. But mm-hmm. at the same time, he's the worst casting ever because he never loses that beginning Paul. Yeah, he doesn't. We don't see a transformation. No, and I think I feel like. I want to give credit to to William Goldman because I think he's a great scriptwriter and a good novelist. I feel like he would have drafted the script to have some sort of transformation. You know, maybe I'm giving credit where there's no credit due. <laughs> I mean, we'll never know we'll for never sure. We'll never know we for sure. Um, my speculation is there's something there, and then that when they cast James Caan, it flattens flatten flatten things role. out because he just, that's just not. No, what he can we, do, and we don't see that growth in Paul. And that it's absolutely in Paul. no growth, and so you know, I feel like James Caan is just—I can't ever lose the fact that he's James Caan. Oh, a bit of a Jeff Goldblum scenario, then. A little bit. I don't hmm. give him my award, but and it's—it's it's like for a movie with four actors in it, the fact that we have multiple Jeff Goldblum awards—that's pretty impressive. <laughs> it really is, but I mean. And it's, it's not that I lose the fact that he's James Caan. It's just that I never, I never believe him. I never believe him as Paul. Mm. Like, you know, in that scenario. I don't know. Well, that is, that is some harsh criticism. Yeah. And I do feel if James Caan ever hears our podcast, he's going to feel bad that you said that about his performance. You were really good in Elf. <laughs> I liked um, you there. <clears throat> And okay, you were good in the Godfather movies too. I like the, I like the part where you died. Yeah, where I'm you, sorry. Where you got shot a lot. Where you died at the at the fort at the crossing. It's a terrible place to die. It really is. It was. I mean, you know, the Godfather is based on a book. It is. We're not doing that. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right then. Well, no, I mean, we can Veto. do it if we really want to, but it's so iconic that I would be like. Yeah. I... No, I, I, I agree. Yeah. If if someone else has dedicated an entire podcast exactly. to a franchise, we are not. We're not doing it. it in one episode. We're not doing Harry Potter. No, we're not doing. We're Game not of doing Lord of the Rings. <laughs> we're not doing. Game, yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe we will get really drunk and do it. Someday yeah, and, and then not release it. To it'll the public. be like what we'll do is we'll start like a Patreon account. We'll be like, this is special content for those who want to like you no know. No one wants. <laughs> But no one wants that because there's already a million Game of Thrones podcasts out there. I know, but like we you could have be a like, hey, take. Rank, no, we rank your top ten Game of Thrones podcasts, people, and there will be people whose lists do not overlap. That's how many Game of Thrones podcasts there are. All right, that's fair. We're not doing Game of Thrones. <laughs> no, and I totally don't think we should. Although it, it actually could be really funny. Because we do, what, like a 10-minute synopsis? I mean, we attempt to do a 10-minute synopsis and fail miserably, right? Yeah. Is do a 10-minute synopsis of the entire series. series. <laughs> um, <laughs> just try. Just, and basically, the, the entire synopsis would be like, this character's dead, this character's dead, this character's dead, this character's dead. Oh, wait, this character's alive, this character's dead. And then the, the, and then the TV show would be like, this character dies, and then there's boobs, this character dies, yeah, and, then and, then there's, and then there's And then there's having sex, and then there's this body parts, and then, yeah. Yeah, it'd be great. It would be awesome. I can't. I can't imagine people not wanting to hear that. I mean, we basically <laughs> already did it, so <laughs> yeah, we should do it again. Done. All right, let's credit ourselves. We did our Game of Thrones episode. <laughs> oh, okay. Moving on. Yeah. <laughs> so I think now it's time for some fun and games, right? Yay! Yay! So let's start with heartthrobs and hairdos. So, um, 
as I previously mentioned, there's only like four actors in this, so coming <laughs> yep, up yep. with my top three hotties was a little difficult, and so I didn't. Um, I have two hotties. Okay. Uh, hottie number one is uh, Ace Richard Farnsworth as nice. Buster, because you know what? He's a silver fox. He totally is. In that cowboy outfit. Oh, heck yeah. He's, he's, he's a little spicy. Yeah. You know? Colorado policeman. Um, and then the other heartthrob, I just thought of this before we started recording, was um, Liberace. Oh, Annie's, God, yes. Annie's second favorite celebrity. Yep. All right, that's, that's a good one. <laughs> that's a good one. Who are your top three heartthrobs? Okay, well, I only had one. So clearly you did better than I did. But mine was Lauren Bacall because she's always effing gorgeous. That's true. Like, Lauren I can Bacall's. never not choose her because she's just stunning. Even she when is. she's in her full-on 80s getup. And she's full on eighties. She is full on eighties businesswoman. Oh god. Yeah. Yep. Shoulder pads could take yep. out a glacier. Oh my god, yeah. And that's it. <laughs> um, should we move on to top three styles or outfits? Yeah, what are your top three? I don't have any. You don't have any. I don't have any. I only have pure disappointment that Annie's outfit <laughs> philosophy did not adhere more more closely to the book. Okay. So I have some I again, I only have two. But I decided to focus on Colorado winter wear <laughs> because that's all we get. So um, Buster has a great, like, cowboy mm, um, leather jacket. sheep line coat. Yes. yes, one of those. So um, that's super, nice. uh, super fine. And then his lovely wife, Virginia, uh, who is just a feisty little... I love her. Oh, she's amazing. Yeah. The, She's been in other movies. She's been in a lot of movies, actually. She's been in a ton of movies. She's one of these actresses who's just been a... She's just a character actor. Yeah, she's everything. been fantastic. Oh, I think she is. Oh, she definitely she is. She might be dead now. Yeah, she totally okay. is. Um, but they're, like... Her, like... Like, flirting with him and, like, oh, I want to get some alone time with you. It's super great. But anyway, she's got a very pretty uh, plaid coat. So that's my... My Colorado <laughs> winter wear. I love it. Thank you. I love it. Oh, no, she's still alive. Hi. Oh, good. Yay. Yay. How old is she? She was born in 1930. So do Not some that math. bad. She's doing well. She is. Oh, but she hasn't been in anything since 2014, so she's probably enjoying her retirement. Yeah. I, yeah. Hope, I hope she is enjoying it. Right? Oh, right. She was on ER. A um, lot of people have. Oh, with George Clooney. Oh, that just shortened yeah, up my, uh, there you my go. six degrees of separation. Love it. Oh, yeah, she's been in a ton of things. Yeah, she's been in a ton of things. Um, nothing that I want to say right now. Um, okay, so pulling up my notes again. So I think it's time for quizzes and questions. Yay! Anna, do you want to go first with your sure. first one? So, Sam, I think I might already know this because we talked about it earlier, but what is your favorite adaptation of a Stephen King story? I w um, yeah, I think The Stand is definitely one of them because, you know, it's, Again, his, not his best book, but it's an enjoyable book. And I think the unabridged version actually adds back some of the elements that um, were lost when it was cut down. Mm -hmm. Granted, Stephen King could still use some heavy editing in his newer books. I feel like he's uh, he's not as precise as he used to be. Oh dear. Um, but I feel like The Stand was one of those novels where they cut it down and they didn't do the best job. Mm. So when I read the unabridged version, I was like, oh, this is good. 
And then, of course, it connects into the Dark Tower series, which is my favorite. Oh, and, yeah, of course. I mean, all of his Book. books are interconnected, and yeah. But um, the miniseries was so good, and the it's cast was phenomenal. Cast. It was yeah. phenomenal. And it's one of those miniseries that I do enjoy rewatching. Oh, yeah. Uh, I feel like you could do some really fun six degrees of separation with that. Oh, yeah, for sure. Cast. Yeah. I mean, if I had to pick my favorite actor in that... I don't know. I think def- I think Gary Sinise would be up there. Well, obviously. But, Gary I mean... Gary Sinise is number one hottie in that one. Oh, yeah. He totally is. Oh, yeah. Top three hotties from the span. Gary Sinise. Gary Sinise. Gary Sinise. Gary Sinise. Sinise. Gary Sinise. Yeah. No, I mean, Molly Ringwald. She's cute. Yeah. She's cute. Uh, I don't... I'm, the guy who played um, the, Larry was okay. Yeah. Um, uh, not M-O-O-N. Spells Moon. Yeah. Though. Bill Freiberbach. Is that how you say his last name? The I have no from, idea. He was in Coach, which I loved. Um, and then Rob Lowe. Oh, right. Rob was Lowe Nick. was in it. Yes. Of course. Okay, so Rob Lowe's on the list of hotties. Then. Yes, he totally is, even though he's blonde. It's so weird. <laughs> <laughs> we'll forgive a lot of Rob Lowe. Yeah, we, especially we since will, he was in Parks and Rec. Yeah, we will literally forgive yeah. Rob Lowe. Yeah, we will. So yeah. what is the, in your opinion, worst adaptation of a Stephen King? my god all right i'm gonna need to think about this one for like a little bit um, like it just the first one that comes to your head it's okay if it's not definitive this is just the shining which one the jack nicholson one really yes i mean it's a good movie okay. but it is not his book that might be his most the most beloved film adapted from a stephen king book yes it's like, but if you're might looking be the at most it, successful financially, critically. Yeah, but if you're looking at it as an adaptation of the book, it's not good at all. <laughs> wow. So you know how Misery is not faithful to the motivations of Annie and Paul? Sure, and yeah. It's very similar with The Shining. So basically Jack Nicholson in the movie is like not, is like not motiv- like has none of the same motivations as... Danny McSun, what's, what's, Jack Nicholson, what's his character's name? Is his name also Jack? I don't think so. Um, I know Danny has a son, and I, I haven't Torrance. read- Torrance? Yeah, something Torrance. Danny Torrance is the son, which I keep saying, because that's the only name I know right now. And I have to read it, but I haven't read it yet, but they did do a sequel called Dr. Sleep, which oh, I, I need to read. I haven't read that either. I've heard it was really good. Yeah, Jack Torrance. Jack, Jack Nicholson. Okay. Jack, Jack Nicholson is really at his best when he can play characters named Jack. Yes, I totally agree. Though I have to say he was amazing in One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest. And I don't think his name is Jack anymore. McManus um, was his last name. I. That's all I remember. Seven for Eleven was in. Not a big Jack Nicholson fan. No, he's not. He doesn't really do anything for me. He totally Jeff Goldblum's it. But he not really in does. a charming Jeff Goldblum way. No, exactly. He does like one thing. Yeah. And I kind of get tired of it. Yeah, I mean, even with Christopher Walken, like, I love the fact that Christopher Walken is pretty much Christopher Walken in everything he does. I mean, Christopher Walken is actually, does sometimes lose himself. Not in Puss in Boots, FYI. Just so you know. <laughs> Have we talked about um, Puss in Boots yet? I'm pretty sure we did. Oh, when we talked about Sleep, Sleepy Hollow. I actually, did I tell you I rewatched it recently? With yeah, my... you did. You And you had, you started it with me, and I was just like, are you kidding me? It's so... <laughs> It's so cheesy and charming. And, and the also, music was terrible. He's in it with Jason, with Jason Connery, who is Sean Connery's son. Yes. And there is seriously like his costume is a hat with a ponytail on it. Like, I think he legitimately had long hair because he had long hair for Robin Hood. But 
it's not, it's like, no, I think it was a ponytail attached to his hat. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my, that's so like community. (laughs) Um, Okay, so worst adaptation of a Stephen King story, other than Puss in Boots. I think it's The Shining. Wow, okay, all right. Understood. Um, because I haven't seen them all, so I haven't seen, I haven't actually, I don't remember the Langoliers, I don't remember Tommy Otter. And the Langoliers is not good. No. I don't think there's a good story in the Langoliers. Yeah. Um, I have not seen either of the adaptations that came out last year. I didn't see the Dark Tower movie. I was going to, and then everything I read was just so depressing I couldn't bring myself to watch it. So, the trouble there is, it's not an adaptation, it's a continuation. And I know what that means. And listeners, if you don't know what that means... Spoiler alert. Read all eight, nine? There's seven main books, but then there's the wind through the keyhole, which is like... You can skip the wind through the keyhole. It doesn't... It's it's pleasant, but you don't need it. No. Read the... All seven books of the Dark Tower series. Highly recommend. Highly, highly recommend. They are my absolute all-time favorite Stephen King books. So read those... And you will understand what Sam means when she says it's a continuation. Yes. And we're not going to spoil anything else that's about that. That's all I'm going to say. However, that being said, it still looks super crappy and like they completely misunderstood the character. They did. Okay. I mean, as I still much like, as I love Idris Elba. Well, the thing is, like, I still enjoyed watching it because I love Idris Elba so much. And he he commits so wholly to the role. So I'm just, again, I don't want to hurt any feelings. Well, you know what I'm like, so. But I think sometimes you like bad movies. I'm pretty sure there's no sometimes about it. <laughs> you just, you've seen all of the Transformers movies? No, no, I've stopped at three. Oh, oh, well, then. So, you didn't see the Anthony Hopkins ones. No. Okay. I did not see any of the Mark you Wahlberg's ones. You get a little, little tiny prize. Yeah, thank for you. you. Mm-hmm. So oh, really, Shia LaBeouf was out, and you're like, oh, well, if Shia's not in it, the quality's gone downhill too much. Yeah, is that what you thought? Because his parents were hilarious. Oh, it's good to get away from him, right? Um, okay, interesting. Mm-hmm. All right, I have one more question for you. Okay, so we've talked a lot about how it's a shame that they didn't have the scenes from Misery's Return in the film. So I want you to imagine you have that extra budget, and we are producing this film in 1990. Who would you cast in those scenes of Misery's Return? Uh, and go. All right. I hope you heard all me cracking my knuckles because I'm, I'm prepared. I got this one ahead of time so I can I think it I warned her ahead of time so she could think about it. All right. So um, let me know what you think of this. But as Misery Chastain, Jessica Lange. Okay. I think she could do it. Oh, absolutely. Ian Carmichael is Sam Neill. Ian Carmichael is... Oh! Sam, tying back to Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Um, he wasn't big at the time, but I know him now, and he was he was in the business in 1990, but okay. for Jeffrey Alliburton, Brendan Coyle, Mr. Bates. <gasps> A young Mr. Bates. A young Mr. Jeff Bates. Bates. Right? I approve. Thank you. That's a very, that is a very clever way of doing it. Right? Okay. Um, for Mrs. Ramage, Angela Lansbury. Why would you cast anyone else? Right? Ever in anything. And then I only cast one more part, and that was Coulter and Brian Blessed, because I needed Brian Blessed in it. <laughs> I love Brian Blessed so much. He needed, to, he needed to be in the movie, so. We should make sure we find an adaptation that has Brian Blessed in it. In yes. Season two. I agree. It probably can't be Tom Jones. I love Tom Jones so much, but oh, it's no, 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 don't worry. The book is incredibly long. The book <laughs> and the movie is just too long. 
Oh, I mean, if we wanted to do Henry Fielding, we could do Tom. We could do um Joseph Andrews. Joseph Andrews is fun. Yeah, it's short. <laughs> we loved it. It's yeah. short. Um, so I actually came up with my own option. Oh, let well. me hear. You want to hear them? No, I definitely do. Um, I only did the three leads. I didn't. I will also just assume Angela Lansbury and Brian Blessed because they course. can be in any movie I do ever. Exactly. Um. So okay, this is kind of a throwaway, but you could just cast. Robin Wright, Carrie Elways, and Mandy Patinkin, and it would work. I love it. It would, it totally, would totally work. work. They could just keep the same team. Yep. And... It would totally work. Fantastic. I love um, it. But if you didn't want to just have the exact same actors in the stable, um, I was thinking Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio. I was looking she at Robin Hood. She was in Robin Hood, Prince mm-hmm. of Thieves, so we know she can do the period swashbuckling. Yep. She's great in The Abyss. I love her. I have not seen the abyss, but she's so she could have been good. Mm-hmm. Um, I also would have considered Diane Lane from the. She was in Lonesome Dove yes. right around the same time. Also great she's look great. for the time. Mm-hmm. Um, as uh, Ian, uh, Ian Glenn oh, of Downton Abbey, Lord Europe Richard. Club. Yeah, so he was again not famous at the time, but if you look at, uh, he was he was in the business. He was doing um, like Irish films in 1989, yep. 1990, and you look at pictures of him from that. Period. He was he was a he was a mix. And then, okay, but the only thing is, the first thing I ever saw him in was Lara Croft. As we have previously stated, <laughs> Sam has bad taste in movies. <laughs> and then as Jeffrey, are you ready for this? Uh huh. Uh huh. Kevin Klein. <gasps> oh my god! Yes. Would that be so good? Oh my god! I love him. <laughs> and then my backup for Jeffrey was um, Liam Neeson. Who was in High Spirits in 1988 yes. and was ready for something new? Okay, you have bad I taste have to in tie movies it too. back to High Spirits. No, you have bad taste in movies no, too. No, Sam, my parents, who picked what movies I watched in the 80s, had terrible taste. So the movies I grew up with are terrible. Oh, and but you um, still talk about them. Yeah, all because the they time. were formative. They formed part <laughs> of my brain. Also, I should point out my mom finally listened to the podcast. Hi, mom. Um, yeah, so the reason I've seen High Spirits so many times is because they taped it off of TV on a VHS, <laughs> and I would watch it. I kind of want to watch it again, though. Well, you do that. I will. <laughs> you let me know how it goes for you. Do you have any questions for me, <laughs> and we can move on? I do. Okay. Okay. Um, so mine are not nearly as fun, but how would you have brought Misery back to life? Uh, you mean besides a, a bee sting-induced coma? Yes. Oh, my goodness. Okay. How would I have brought her back to life? I mean, witchcraft. Okay. Right? Yeah, it's totally, totally legit. I would have had some kind of like, I mean, you can't do zombie. No. But Buffy the Vampire Slayer was able to bring back a lot of characters through magic that then like weren't zombies. Mm-hmm. So. And, but they, and like, they weren't wholly themselves, which I think would have been an interesting Could have been fun, like, if she comes back as a vampire. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's definitely a gothic streak to these. Oh yeah, they're definitely gothic. Yeah. novels. have her come back as a vampire. Yeah. Done. Nice. All right. Um, would you have read Paul's new novel, Fast Cars? Or as it was called in the movie, Untitled? No. <laughs> I would have picked it up in Barnes & Noble, looked at the cover. No, you know what? I wouldn't have picked it up in Barnes & yeah. Noble. I would have seen that. I judge books by their cover. Oh, yeah. That's what you're supposed I to do. do. I don't care. I would do. have walked right past it. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, like, I know Paul was all like, oh, yeah, this is like a big thing, but I was like, I was not intrigued by that novel at no, all. It did not the character sound sounded terrible. No. Breaking Paul Sheldon's heart. You know what, Paul Sheldon, James Bond? I don't care. 
deserve it. You know they're not the same person, right? They are now. <laughs> In my brain, they are. In my brain, they are. All right, and then for for you, I think you kind of touched on this earlier, but what's scarier, having your foot chopped off or having both your ankles broken? Oh, <laughs> that is like a visceral reaction, that image. Um, I mean, I mean, foot chopped off with an axe and cauterized with a blowtorch is scarier. All right. Um, Legit. It, it is. Yeah. All right, that works. And now I can't sleep tonight. Okay. You're welcome. Life's on. <laughs> That's what Stephen King does. Is it time for fake awards? Yes, it is. Now, we talked about this before we started recording. We each have our own selection for the Jeff Goldblum Award. So, Sam, who's your Jeff Goldblum Award going to? All right. So, the Jeff Goldblum Award for me goes to J.T. Walsh, because every time I see him, I'm like, it's that guy from that movie. And then people are like, what movie? I'm like, every movie? Just pick one. He's in all of them. He's in all of them. And he only has, like, five minutes in this movie. But less than, he has it. less than five minutes in this movie. <laughs> he has five lines. But it was totally worth it. I was like, hey, it's that guy. It's J.T. Walsh guy. J.T. Walsh guy. Is he still alive? No, he died, actually, um, when he had just finished filming The Negotiator, and it was before it was released, and he died. It was, like, 1990-something, I think. Okay, so now you can say, hey, it's that dead guy. It's that dead guy. Yeah. Which I do, because I'm, I'm classy that way. And sensitive. <laughs> oh, clearly. Pure sensitivity here. Well, my Jeff Goldblum Award goes to... Um, the foxy Richard Farnsworth. Um, I grew up with Anne of Green Gables. My parents also taped that off of TV. But that was good. Yes, it is good. It is very good. And worth it. It is excellent. And he's a wonderful Matthew Cuthbert. And I, it's not that he doesn't do a good job as um, as Buster. It's just I can't not see Matthew, Matthew Cuthbert. Yeah, no. I mean, granted, Martin Sheen did a did a serviceable job as Matthew Cuthbert, but I think Matt, I think Richard Farnsworth is definitely the definitive he is, he Matthew. Is Matthew. Mm-hmm. Yep. Also, he is unreasonably cute for his age. Yes. Yes. Like you said, he is the clever fox. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what other awards do you have? All right. So the award for fake bodice ripper that I really want to read goes to Misery's Return. Heck yeah. Yeah. Right. And then my last one is uh, the Naughty List Award is a tie between Kathy Bates and James Caan. Okay. This is a new award. I feel like we should we should bring this back. Yeah. A Naughty List naughty Award. List. Yeah. So um, Kathy Bates gets it because... Um, she should have fought harder to be the true enemy. Mm. And then James Caan gets it because he just was James Caan. He just was James Caan, yeah. Rob Reiner's. Yeah. See, I would say it's more Rob Reiner's fault, and he should have been in the list award. Well, he can definitely be added to the list. There you go. He's it's also tri- now on, time. Right? <laughs> it's one of your rest of the awards. Um, so I want to give the uh, fake award for hashtag relationship goals to Buster and Virginia, who <laughs> keep it frisky after decades of marriage. They're so cute. And then the Why Won't She Die Award goes to Kathy Bates. That's a good one, too. She's won several awards today. <laughs> yeah, she has. I mean, she did win the Academy Award for Best Actress, so I feel like it's only fair that she gets some more for accolades for this role. <laughs> Maybe not accolades that. she wants, but... This did not come up in discussion, but I do feel we can't end the episode without mentioning how fantastic she is yes. in Dolores Claiborne. Oh, my God. She's also Stephen so King good. adaptation, and I would say is a much... Isn't it? It is a much better adaptation. I think it's up there, like, it's like... if. If you're looking for just a movie rather than a miniseries, I think Dolores Claiborne is definitely the adaptation to watch then. Oh, it is. And it's a very watchable movie. Yeah, it's so good. And the book is also very nail-biting. Mm-hmm. And I think Kathy Bates, as good as she is in Misery, yeah. I think she's better in Dolores yeah. Claiborne. Well, I think, I think, I thought I read somewhere that Stephen King actually wrote Dolores Claiborne with Kathy Bates in mind. I could believe that. 
yeah. I could believe that. It's and like I, the character of Dolores Claiborne is basically based on Kathy Bates. Not like not her personality, but <laughs> like just her, like, like life story. Her or life anything. story, yeah. No, it's but um, yeah. So, and I do want to watch um Gerald's Game, which recently came out. Um, that looked like it was going to be a good adaptation as well. Mm. There's, I will be perfectly honest. There's quite a few Stephen King adaptations I haven't even seen yet. I haven't watched The Mist, and I know they changed the ending, and the ending is there's much, a couple of versions of The Mist. Yeah, there's a they're doing the, there was a TV show and there's a movie with Thomas Jane, but and then the movie version I think they changed the ending, which is much more nihilistic than in the book. Oh really? Yeah, okay. I don't want to spoil anything in case somebody wants to watch the movie, um, but it's directed by Frank Darabont, who also was the head showrunner on Walking Dead before he left in the big old retirement. Uh, yeah. We're After touching on one. all kinds of popular culture references. My today. show notes are going to be so astronomically long. long, and I'm sorry about that. <laughs> You're not sorry. FYI, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, spoiler, spoiler alert. alert. <laughs> Game of Thrones, Downs <laughs> and Abbey, High Spirits again. again. I'm gonna. I am gonna just mention High Spirits every episode. I now. think you should it's, just make that to your bucket list. Anne of Green Gables. Yeah. Just on everything. Walking Dead. Walking Dead. Everything. Yeah, we really have. Liberace. I mean, why wouldn't you want to talk about Liberace? I actually have nothing else to say about Liberace, other than that I kind of want to. I want to watch that movie with him and with Michael Douglas and Adriana Dyer. I haven't watched it yet. Um, I haven't either. It's by the Candelabra. By the Candelabra. That sounds right. Most of what I know about Liberace is based on um, impressions of him on SNL. That seems fair. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Do you have any anything else you want to talk about today uh, in relation to? I I feel anything. like I feel like we went down so many strange, bizarre <laughs> paths this episode. I'm not even sure what were we what were we talking about again. Misery. Misery. By Stephen Misery. King. I'm like, okay. I think it was a book. <laughs> so, in conclusion, <laughs> Stephen King is an excellent writer. He's an amazing writer and How, fantastic. Although, I will say, he is a prolific writer, and with any prolific writer, you're going to have some hits and some misses. Oh, definitely. Like, not every book of his is enjoyable. I, sure. I mean, he's no Dean Koontz, who, like, had, like, an entire stretch of, like, 20 years where every book he produced was awful. <laughs> um, How do you really feel? Oh my god. It's like, this is going to sound terrible. I'm really, I apologize to all men who have hair replacements. Um, but Dean Koontz, in the early 80s, maybe until the late 80s, was bald. Like, he had the the monk thing where he had no hair, and then all of a sudden he had a full head of hair. And then, very like, one of the very next books, and I was just like, that's not fooling anyone. I'm like, what are you doing, buddy? Just live, just live that. Start the hair replacement when you're just starting yeah. to thin so people exactly. don't notice. Oh my god, and that's or, also when his writing tanked. Or, oh, like his secret power was the baldness? Yeah. I mean, oh. he got better again with still having the full head of hair, but it's like it the took a opposite while. of Samson. Yeah. <laughs> like when he added hair, he lost his strength. <laughs> yeah, embrace the baldness because you know what? Patrick Stewart's been sexy. Oh my god. For like I really years. wanted to cast him in Misery's Return. Just couldn't figure out how to get him. I couldn't figure out how to get him. No. You know what? Both him and Ian McKellen, I wanted them to be like, I mean, they would make the perfect Ian and Jeffrey, because they're like best friends, and Ian and Jeffrey are supposed to be like best friends, and like both, but they're, you know, they were a little too old at that time. Even in 1990? Yeah. Yeah. Because it was only, what, 30 years ago, and they're both in their 60s and 70s. Yeah, so you could, could, Ian and Jeffrey could be 30-something. You can do it, yeah. 
Okay, so that's so another, they're my alternates. another casting. Yeah. You know what? Let's bring them in. Do it. We'll let them read for it. See how they do? Yeah. Oh, perfect. They, they might... They could change our minds. They could totally them a change our minds. I'm, I'm willing to give Patrick Stewart a chance. <laughs> I'm a very generous producer. <laughs> casting director. Yes. So, um... <laughs> And that's the end of that episode. All right. (laughs) On that note. On that note. So in our next episode, we once again stroll the halls of high school, trying to fit in with our favorite girl cliques as we read Queen Bees and Wannabes by Rosalind Wiseman, which was famously adapted into the immensely popular movie Mean Girls by Tina Fey. Uh, FYI, yeah, it's now on Broadway. Do you have what it takes to make that happen? not answering that question i think you should (laughs) we want to hear from you send questions comments and your six degrees to adapted with anna and sam at gmail.com or post on facebook you can find us at adapted with anna and sam follow us on twitter and instagram at adapted podcast let's just keep this conversation going because clearly anna and i cannot shut up today (laughs) anna sam and rupert cannot shut up today Thanks for listening to Adopted with Anna and Sam. I'm Anna, and I wish that Drop Dead Gorgeous was based on a book. Oh, good Mm -hmm. choice. I'm Sam, and I wish The Negotiator was based on a book. Bye. Bye!